Have you ever heard yourselves say anything like this? I wish that more people would say that my Bible studies and my public prayers are really good. You would think that after all the tithes and offerings that we give, that God will bless us with something nice for our home. Our church should be just as big as the church down the road, and just as well known, because we do just as much stuff as they do. More people should come to hear me preach on a Sunday evening, because I put many hours of preparation into my sermons. I work hard at being moral, living a good life, in, in my workplace, but it makes no difference. My friends still don't care about Jesus. I don't see the point in praying for things because God doesn't give me what I want. I hope that God was pleased with me today because I served really well in church. I don't know if any of those sound familiar to you or ring any bells to attitudes, thoughts, expectations we may have towards how we serve, the results that we feel that we, do, we deserve, how God should have responded to the way that we have served him. Or maybe you have reacted in a way because God hasn't done things the way we thought he should have done them. And so therefore we want to blame him for not acting or acting according to his way and not our way. Perhaps we doubt that he really can make a difference. Maybe we accuse him of not caring. We accuse him of not wanting justice to be seen. I hope that as you listen to those various thoughts and musings, that you realise that they were bad responses, bad attitudes towards Christian living. Thoughts and attitudes about serving which are very self-centred and ultimately reveal the true motives of the heart, the reason really why we want to serve. I want to suggest that the type of response that we give to the results of what happens when we serve reflect or give some kind of good evidence for the real reason that we serve in the first place. The way that we react to things that happen to the consequences of living for God really reveal the true origin of our motives. If we complain when the Christian life is costly, or if we're upset because no one gives us recognition for our service, then does, not, does that not show us that we have a desire for personal gain as the true motive for our service? Of course, serving in the church is, is a good thing, and we, we should serve. God calls us to serve. But with what motive, for what, what attitude do we serve? In our passage this evening, we meet two groups of believers, two groups of people who serve, who obey God. But as we read through it, we realise that they're both doing it from very different attitudes, different motives in how they're approaching their service, and therefore that affects their relationship with the Lord. Firstly, we have the arrogant, as the Lord calls them, the arrogant who are serving from false motives. So far in Malachi we've seen that these Jews who have returned from exile to the land are, are going about their normal lives, they're serving God, they're bringing sacrifices to the temple just as their forefathers would have done. They're following the ways of Moses. They're bringing sacrifices that we've already learned that they were bad sacrifices and they're claiming that they're keeping God's requirements. They're doing what they've been told they should do. 
Perhaps by this stage they may have even begun some kind of repentance. They've heard Malachi, God through Malachi say various things about their behaviour and maybe they've thought, okay, let's repent. And so here they are, dressed in sackcloth and ashes and going about outwardly showing repentance. But are they really repentant? Repentance was the right thing to do, but what was their attitude to it? What did they want to get out of their outward showing of repentance? Did they repent with true humility, with faith? Did they repent with fear before their God? They went about serving God. They brought their offerings into the temple. But what kind of offerings were they bringing? They brought diseased animals, lame sheep. Does, does that not show the true motive of their heart, the true intentions, their attitude towards God? What is it they say here? He says it, they say it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements? Serving God's pointless. It doesn't result in anything for me. It's a waste of time to serve God because it bears no fruit. We're still suffering, we're still struggling. God doesn't seem to be blessing us. We serve, but there's no prosperity. We obey, but there's no blessing. But what's more, look at the people outside. Look at the ones who have no care for God. Life is fine for them. It's, it's, it's a pleasure. They do evil acts. They stand against God, yet they live in peace. It seems that God shows no justice. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, David Oakley was speaking from chapter 3, and there were very similar attitudes being expressed this thought that God was blessing the wicked. David took us to to Psalm 73, where we meet Asaph, this man who really struggled and almost lost his faith because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. I know that it's easy to fall into this trap, that we decide to live God's way, to obey his instructions, We know that it's hard work, but when it doesn't result in profit for us, or when it results in disappointment, or when we feel tired and complain about that, or when we're frustrated in a bad way, when we're angry, maybe even we say, what's the point? We preach the gospel, we share our faith, we invite people to Christianity, explore, but it makes no difference. We pray for loved ones, we pray for a job, we pray for a spouse, we pray for a child, we pray for things which are good. But when God doesn't answer the questions, we say, what's the point? What's the point in praying? Or perhaps, hypothetically, we hear back from Clutton's or the PCC on the church and we hear that our bid for the Irving building has been unsuccessful. What a waste of time. It's pointless serving God. It makes no difference. And on top of it all, look at our friends. Happy and free. They go on nice holidays. They've got good jobs. Their lifestyle is in complete opposition to God. And so we think, what is the point? I don't know whether that has been your experience. Have those thoughts, those questions come into your mind when apparent fruitlessness in our Christian services is all that we see. Perhaps there's been a mistake, an error 
in our motives, in our hearts, in the reasons for why we serve. What does God say to these people who have this attitude? On that first verse 13, he says, You have spoken arrogantly against me. You've spoken harsh words, critical, proud words. You've spoken from selfish motives, arrogant attitudes towards serving God. God has seen their service, but he's seen that their motives is for personal gain. And that's been evident by the type of service that they bring. Here they are, repenting outwardly, they're showing that they're sorry, they're mourning, going about with a a sad face. But because they don't get anything from it, they say, what's the point in doing that? They didn't really mean it. They come, they bring their sacrifices, their offerings to the temple, to obey the Lord, to follow his requirements. But yet they bring lame animals. They don't really mean it. With what motive do you serve God? Do we serve God to bring him glory? To build a church? To spread the good news of Jesus? An attitude that's not about ourselves, but about him? And leaving the consequences with him as well? Or do we only do things that we do for our glory? We do things that will cause people to see us. We do things that will produce fruit for ourselves. We do things only if they don't cost us too much. Or maybe the next group that we meet from verse 16, maybe they'll help us to show what attitude should we have when it comes to serve the Lord. Here we are God-fearers. Before we had the arrogance, now we have the God-fearers. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. Well, right away we see here is a, a group that has a very different attitude, a very different motive to serving God. They are people who feared the Lord. They showed their reverence and respect to who God is, to his character, to his works. They approached him and they responded with humility and trust. They were those who conducted their worship and their service in a way that would bring honour to his name. That was their goal, that was their motive. There are a group of people who, like the first, had heard Malachi's prophecy perhaps and had begun to, to respond to it. But instead of the rebuke that the first group got, here we have a group of people who respond in a different way. Their response is different. Their repentance is different. Unlike the first group who wanted to show their repentance by going about mourning, but not really meaning it, here we have a group who have gathered together to talk, to discuss what is the true response to what the Lord has been saying to us. We don't know what they said when they met together. You can only speculate. Or perhaps they got together and they were discussing what is the true response of repentance. How do we best change our behaviour that's true obedience, to live lives that really do bring honour to his name, rather than seeking what we can get out of it for ourselves. Whatever their conversation was, whatever their reactions, whatever their motives were, the Lord listened and he heard. 
And he was pleased with it. They feared the Lord. They acknowledged who he was. They, they accepted God and God's ways. They trusted in him. They submitted to his will and lived for God's glory. They feared not in the sense that they were afraid of God's punishment if they didn't do right things, but they feared in the sense of having their goal and their desire, their true motive in serving the Lord and pointing others towards him. They wanted to bring honour, they wanted to do nothing that would bring dishonour to his name. So to serve the Lord with honour, with honour and with fear means that I serve purely for his kingdom and not to receive something back from myself. I preach that others may see Jesus. I'd long for them to see Jesus, not that they would see me. I serve in fear and live a godly life that they would not bring dishonour to God's name. And whatever way people respond to the gospel, I leave that in God's hands. We pray for church growth, but that's God's business. We pray that he would be glorified in it. It's not my personal ambition to look good, but that God would be glorified. How do we serve in fear? We serve sacrificially. We serve quietly. We serve not to be noticed, but so that others can grow in faith and can grow in the love of the Lord. <clears throat> Our joy is not that we would get the thanks but that we would joy, rejoice and delight in seeing others come to Jesus and growing in their faith rather than looking to us. Well, God's response to these people who met together was he listened and he heard. Just as he had done to the first group, but to them he rebuked them for their sinful attitude. Here he honours them. Malachi tells us that a scroll of remembrance was written in God's presence, for those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. In those days, <clears throat> well, like today really, history was written down for people to reflect on and read the chronicles and the annals. As you read through the Old Testament, you see, if you want to know more about this king, read about it in the chronicles or in the annals. If you think the book of Esther, Mordecai, this faithful Jew, he'd overheard something, a rumour that the king's life was in danger. So he went and he told Esther. And Esther told the king. And consequently the king's life was saved. And all the good things that Mordecai had done were written down in this book of remembrance. And a few chapters later we read that the king couldn't sleep. <clears throat> so he gets someone to come and read him from the book of Chronicles. And there he sees Mordecai, a man who'd done a great deed. And he remembers and he honours Mordecai. And I think what Malachi is saying, what God is saying to Malachi here, is that he, he hears, he notices those who are faithful. Those who have quietly repented. Those who have seen and heard what the Lord has said. And from a true motive, have honoured his name. It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge because it's so easy for us to outwardly show our Christian living. To do things that Christians do because we know that they're good. We can go about the motions of coming to church and singing the songs, but really we have a hard heart. 
We do things, we serve because we want things for ourselves. We want to gain credit for ourselves. And unfortunately for some, and I hope not you this evening, we, we do things because it will, we think it will earn us salvation. It will earn us a spot in heaven. And so a good test. A good test is next time you serve, for example, next time you put out the chairs, no one has seen it. No one has thanked you for it. What is your response? Is it to begrudge it? Is it to become bitter because no one has appreciated your work? Is it to complain because it's hard work? Or are we happy just to serve the Lord and to honour him? To do the jobs that enable other people to worship and other people to grow? God desires faith. He desires people who fear him, who have true motives, the desire to honour the Lord's name. God knows and he tests the motives of our heart. And he knows us and he will respond on that last day, on the final day. Verse 17. God's response. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. They will be my treasured possession, those who have feared the Lord. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between those who serve God and those who do not. We see here that God will act Injustice. He'll distinguish the righteous from the wicked. God will spare those who fear him. The Lord will act. Doesn't say on that possible day in the future, maybe if I act. No, he says when I act. There is a day set where the Lord Jesus will return, a day when the world will be judged. The people back in Malachi say, don't think that God is going to judge. He's bypassing the injustice that's in the world. They're complaining. They're saying that those who don't believe in God are going about and they're living great lives. It appears that God is blessing those who do injustice. They equated good life, prosperity of the wicked, with the blessing of God. But the Lord says, on the final day I will show true justice my response to the wicked and the righteous in the New Testament Jesus tells a parable along these lines a parable of the wheat and the weeds wheat and weeds that are growing together and it's hard to tell the difference but one day the wheat will be pulled up the wheat representing the wicked and they'll be thrown away and burnt in the fire the weeds the wheat, the wheat on the other hand will be picked and will be taken into the Father's barn. That day it will be clear who are the righteous and who are the wicked. Not by their works, but by their response to the Lord. The righteous are those who serve God in fear. The wicked are those who don't serve God. Asaph, this man we thought about in Psalm 73, he was fixed on the wicked and the prosperity. 
But when he turned back to the word of God, when he entered the temple and remembered God's promises, he realised and remembered that although they seemed to prosper now, their final destiny was under God's judgments. At the end of the psalm, he says, those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are are unfaithful to you. And God says, on that day again, you will see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Again. Have they seen a distinction before? I suppose at different points in Israel's history, there's been a, a clear distinction between how God has acted, between his people and those who are not his people. Under David, under Joshua. But I wonder whether he's thinking back to the Exodus at this point. There we see God acting clearly, distinguishing his people from those who aren't his people. It's there that he calls his people his treasured possession. Those who he rescued and called out of Egypt all those years ago. There they are, being rescued by God. They're brought to Mount Sinai. They're brought into a new relationship. And God says these words. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my command and my covenant, then all of you, all the nations, sorry, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Lord will act. The Lord will act in justice and in judgment as he did in Egypt. He will distinguish the righteous from the wicked as he did in Egypt. He will spare those who feared the Lord and obeyed him as he did in Egypt. The Lord said that he will spare those, he will spare those just as a father has compassion and spares those who fear him. This morning we read from Psalm 103. And some of the verses later on, after what those we read, speak about a father having compassion on his children. Right? Like the Lord who has compassion on those who fear him. And God says, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord will have compassion on those who fear him. Those who serve, those who believe and trust in the Lord. See, when a, a son obeys his father, there's no need for punishment. When a son repents of his wrongdoing against his father, the father can have compassion and can spare his son. And of course when we read the words of father sparing his son, we can think of some similar words in the New Testament in Romans that talk about a father who doesn't spare his son. Romans 8 verse 32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? On that last day, one will be classed as righteous, not because of the great works that you've done, not that your works will somehow outweigh the evil works you've done, putting you in favour of the righteous, but because we have feared the Lord. Which means that we've sought to Obey him. Which means that we've listened to the rebuke that he's given 
against our sin, and we've seen our unworthiness before him, that we have sinners condemned, and that we've responded in humility, in repentance, in faith. We've trusted in, in him and in his justice, the justice that is ultimately shown in Jesus Christ. True justice because God did not spare his only son, but punished him in our place so that we who trust in Christ can rest in him. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to try and earn our way to God. We trust in his righteousness. And we are therefore called his treasured possession. God's treasured possession. That we belong to him for all eternity. That's what we get out of being Christians. Paul tells the Ephesian believers that when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So when we're tempted, or when we fall in to the temptations of responding to things that happen in our Christian lives, the difficulties and the struggles, the apparent fruitlessness, when we respond with the attitudes of what's the point? Or what do I gain out of this? Let's stop. Let's repent. Let's correct our attitude. Let's correct our motives. Because we're not Christians to get things out of it for ourselves. Although there will be wonderful blessings and are wonderful blessings in being a Christian. We're not Christians purely for selfish means. But we're Christians because God is our loving Heavenly Father who has loved us with such a deep compassion that he sent his Son to rescue us from sin and from death. And so we live. We live our Christian lives with all the sacrifice not to earn favour but to honour his glorious name. And on that last day, on that final day, a scroll of remembrance, a book of life, a book of life we heard about this morning in Philippians, it will be opened. And the names of those who are written written in the book are not those who have come to church. They are not those who have given their money to good causes. Those written in the book of life are not those who read their Bibles and who pray but they are those who humbly repented of their sins, who looked to the Lord Jesus, who trusted in him, and who lived their lives in fear of the Lord, seeking to honour him and bring glory to his name. May the honour and glory of his name be the true motive that drives our worship and drives our service.